Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right, everybody, welcome to this fantastic live episode of The Compliance Guy. It is Monday, January 23rd in the interesting year of 2023, at least thus far it's been interesting. So that means it is a roundtable, and as always, I am joined by our all-star panel. Scott Kraft, Terry Fletcher, Christine Hall, Paul Spencer, and Stephanie Howard. They are all here today, live, and ready to engage in meaningful discussions. So right before we logged on, I don't know what got into me at like 3.30 this afternoon for whatever reason. Well, I know the reason why. I decided to listen to the Grease motion picture soundtrack. I know. I know. Uh you know what it was? We had two, our two oldest granddaughters with us this weekend, and one of them asked us to play um, Summer Nights, uh, you know, where John Travolta and Olivia Newton just stop it, Paul, where, you know, they sing, uh, you know, okay, so with that said, enough of that nonsense. So good to have everybody here. Thank you all for tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us just for a little while. We got a fantastic show set up for you today. Uh, I want to kick off first with Paul Spencer, because Paul is usually our whipping boy, and we always make him go last for some reason. So we're going to start with Paul Spencer today, because I think this is probably one of the most interesting things that's going on. And for those of you that have not been keeping up with it, there has been a change to the United Healthcare uh, appeals process for claims. So I'm going to pause there, Paul. I'm going to go ahead and put you up here in the center square, and the floor is yours, my friend. Okay. Well, thank you, Sean. Well, uh, the the important thing to uh, point out is that this is uh, the UHC uh, process has is about to change as of February 1st mm -hmm. for reconsiderations and appeals, whereas in the past you would do this uh, in a paper format of some kind. Uh, beginning on February 1st, all reconsiderations and appeals need to be in electronic format for uh, UHC. Now, uh, there is a link that I can provide uh, to uh, Sean in private chat, and I can have him put it up uh, for everybody's digestion, uh, you know, in order to... Uh, make certain that we have that for everybody. What uh, United Healthcare has done is they have put together something of an FAQ uh, in order to get everybody from uh, one place to the other as this process begins. Uh, Sean will be posting that shortly, right after I post it. Uh, and there are multiple facets to this, and I wanted to focus on one where there's a bit of a compliance risk that goes into this. Uh, 
There are a few different ways that you can submit it electronically. Uh, first, UHC has a portal where you can go directly to their portal uh, and put up appeal documents. The other issue, and one of the bigger uh, challenges, is something called the Application Programming Interface, or API. This is a way for your practice management system to route reconsiderations and appeals directly to UHC, uh, and there is a process for signing up for something like that, and it is explained in the uh, link that is provided uh, that I provided to Sean that I hopefully will be putting up on the screen for everybody. Uh, but there's a big issue here in the API context for uh, practices who have a practice management system that's handled by a third-party billing company. And, you know, suddenly if you're doing electronic transactions other than the usual uh, clearinghouse transactions for claims and you're adding reconsiderations and appeals for a commercial insurance carrier and you're connecting that practice management system uh, to UHC system in order to better move those things back and forth, now is really a good time to make certain that your third-party billing company has a compliance program that they are following. And just as an update, the OIG guidance for third-party billing companies was first released in December of 1998. Uh, so they have been out for basically a quarter of a century. If you're dealing with a third-party billing company that doesn't have an active, uh, dynamic, evolving compliance program, uh, now is the time to get one. Uh, we can view this UHC appeals and reconsiderations process as the canary in the coal mine, where one commercial insurance goes, the rest are more than likely going to follow. Uh, so this is something that you want to be on top of. And again, this starts on February 1st, which is, uh, if you haven't been following this news very well, uh, and if you're not aware of the calendar, that's also known as next Wednesday. Uh, so let's, you know, you want to uh, be at the forefront of this and you want to be out ahead of it uh, for all of your reconsiderations and appeals to UHC as of February 1st. Paul, this is fantastic information. I have gone ahead and posted the link that you were referring to for everybody in the comments. Um, so uh, go ahead and uh, grab a hold of that and you can uh, read that information a little bit later on today. Um, you brought up something that's really interesting and I want to kind of go to the panel to talk about this because I have some, I have some thoughts about third-party billing companies. And um, I know Terry and I always have healthy conversations about this. And I know we have folks from billing companies that are listening. And um, listen, it's critical that the billing companies define their scope of work. You have to be able to clearly explain to your clients <clears throat> what the expectations they should set of your organization. Because if you are a data entry company, meaning you are taking claim information that is sent over to you either in a paper record or electronically from the EHR, 
and you are simply putting that into your system to transmit to a clearinghouse for them to put into standard or non-standard transactions to go to an insurance company, then that is the true definition of a billing company. You are simply billing for the services. If you open yourself up to say that we are going to review and we are going to ensure that it is complete and accurate, you are no longer a billing company. You are essentially a compliance function to that organization. And that is where there needs to be clear understanding to avoid a potential liability situation because I'm having a lot of clients right now that are reaching out to us who have been targeted as part of an OIG investigation or part of a civil investigative demand issued by the Department of Justice where they're using a third-party billing company and they're saying, wait a minute, don't they have some liability in this thing? So let me pause for a minute. Christine, I want to put you up here into the center box because I know you ran a billing company um, when you were 15 years old. So let me go <laughs> to you first, and I want to come right back here uh, in just a moment. Absolutely, Sean. I think that's one thing that uh, a lot of people going into a, the business of being a billing company, they don't understand what what obligations they might have based on the terms of that arrangement. If they're just pushing the button for them, that's one thing. But like you said, if you're offering any other service as part of that billing company, then it really is becoming part of their compliance program. So for depending upon what relationship you have with that other entity that you're doing billing for, you know, you may have to sit in on a, their compliance meeting or ask for their latest compliance report or yourself have an activity in your compliance program that includes those agreed terms with the other party there. So there's there's a lot more responsibility other than we just and I and I heard that a lot. We just do this for them. So absolutely. And you're right, Paul, it's so been around since nine. 98. It's not something new that I, I always laugh when people talk about when did this compliance thing come up? It's been a while. Yeah. So Terry, let me let me go to you for a moment, right? And again, I want to be very clear when I say this. I am not anti-billing companies. I am not anti-third-party organizations. I want to be clear out of the gate. But you also have to be smart as a consumer when you are engaging with a third party to do your diligence on that organization, to vet them, to make sure that what they are telling you they are capable of doing, they are actually capable of doing. But most importantly, you know, well, I'll come back to that next thing. Let me, let me pause there and let me take a breath and give you an opportunity to chime in here. No, I agree with that. Not just with billing companies, but with any third party vendor. Remember, the vendors are out there to make money as well. And so they're going to kind of give you some pie in the sky sometimes, some things that say, oh, guess what we can do for you or give you just a little bit of what your responsibility is. And then you find out, unfortunately, later on that actually it was all your responsibility. Um, I know I see this not just with billing companies, with care management companies, um, with 
device companies. I mean, you name it, there's companies out there. Oh, now the new, you know, tele whatever company. Um, but you have to be very careful and make sure that um, because there's, there's so many things that a physician automatically trusts. I can't believe the trust that providers put into these companies without first making sure that they do their due diligence and ask for a reference. Or, you know, one of the things um, I ask for, especially with device companies, is I say, okay, I need to see, and I tell my clients this, I need to see some EOBs showing that it was paid from one of your clients. And I need to see some clients that not only are happy with the service, but if I could talk to a client that wasn't happy so I can see the struggles. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm just like, I want a reference so that if I'm going to refer to my client to it, or if I'm speaking on behalf of the client, I want to make sure they're going to be billing something uh, from a from a um, vendor that knows what they're doing. And I had one vendor that sent me something from 10 years ago, an EOB from Pennsylvania, this small little payer. And I'm in California. That has no bearing on what we do here. And I'm just like, no, where where's what we have here? You know, California blue and, you know, even even Medicare. And they're like, well, we think that's proprietary. I'm like, bye-bye. Yeah. So you have to, you have to definitely do your due diligence or you're going to get into some trouble. So one thing, and, and I do want to bring this up since we are talking about, you know, liability and, and some of these other things. Um, and, and I want this to, this is just a fact. I understand that the cost of doing business by outsourcing overseas could bring significant savings to an organization. But when you do that, you also potentially exponentially increase your liability by doing business with an organization that if something goes sideways, they are beyond the reach of the justice system here in the United States. So what I'm saying is be careful. It is critical to understand that when you talk to a third-party vendor and they say, oh, we have U.S. operations. Well, I want to make sure that it's not U.S. operations, meaning we have a 200-square-foot little uh, uh, room in a big building where we have one person and we call it an administrative building and everybody is across the pond or on the other side of the world. Look, folks, they are having significant problems assigning judges to hear these civil cases in India, right? Because that's where a lot of the outsourcing goes. And I'm not opposed to it. Listen, I have used folks from India to do work for me on social marketing, social media marketing, on other things. You know, um, I, I try as hard as I can to use, you know, folks here, but sometimes getting that turnaround, getting the pricing right, whatever it may be. But you have got to understand the liability that you assume as a hospital, a health system, a physician practice, an ASC, a DME, whatever you are, when you outsource your services, especially where it's tied to processing and adjudication of your claims. Because ultimately, the buck stops with you. Let me stop there. Scott Kraft, any insights? Yeah, you know, uh, the thing I say on this podcast periodically about various topics is the importance of accountability so that when it comes time to decide who's responsible for something, 
everybody doesn't just point at each other and say, well, I just assumed it was that person. And, you know, when I talk to providers, oftentimes I, I have things I say. And one of the things I say is that no matter who or what touched your claim, you know, your signature, whether it's on your chart or your the claim being filed under your name is, is a taking of responsibility for the accuracy of that claim. And so, you know, the way I would apply that to a billing company is I think it's pretty fair to say that you can't just sign a contract and just wash your hands of something and just say, well, they take care of that. So anything that might go wrong, they're responsible for it. I think it's important to understand that you, you know, you maintain responsibility for the infrastructure you create around your claims filing mechanism, around your payment mechanism. And it's important that you understand and that you are doing some sort of due diligence to make sure, one, that it's happening, happening accurately, and two, that contractually everybody's roles and responsibilities are well-defined. All excellent points. Stephanie Howard, before we move on to our next topic, any thoughts? Because yeah. I know yeah. you and I deal with this quite a bit. Yeah. So one of the things that's coming to my mind here was, I would say a worst case scenario, a couple of things that I've experienced in the past with our clients. The first was a situation where I was doing a regular um, audit review. And throughout the review, the small providers practice wanted me to communicate basically with the main biller from his billing company. Um, he pretty much wanted to be hands off in the audit process, which I thought was a little odd. Um, he didn't have anybody internally in his practice to help navigate the workflow of that. And then we also, um, you know, as we went through the process of the audit, I came across different things I was questioning about levels of service. And through conversations with the billing company found out that the biller doesn't feel comfortable with the provider's level fives. So she just changes them to level fours because that was less of a compliance risk. But the notes did not even support the level four. So that created issues there where there's compliance risk for that billing company who does not code. They do not have trained certified coders on staff. Um, it also brought to mind too, uh, Sean, you and I had this situation, I think we first encountered it a couple of years ago, where one of our clients, their billing data was basically being held hostage by the billing company. Um, the, our client could not access any of their information. They tried to gather and piece together some remittance letters that they were receiving, but as a whole, um, all of the information we needed to help them through a pretty bad compliance situation was housed in this system that the company refused to let them have access to. So when you think about utilizing billing companies, and I'm sure Christine and, and Terry, you're familiar with processes like this with your past clients, there really needs to be touch-based meetings. Um, it's not, never anything that should be just kept away because someone else is dealing with it for you. You need to be kept in the loop. You may not fully understand it, but to some extent, you have to be updated. You have to know what's happening because that is not their role. They don't code or they shouldn't code. If your billing company is coding, you should probably go back and have conversations about um, what your contract looks like, who they employ, who's reviewing your information, and all of that. Stephanie, so, I wanted to jump in. Uh, sorry, just 
that's that that right there hit it on the head. I so many times there were providers or there are providers out there because I still work with billing companies on the compliance end that they regardless of what the terms of their contract are, they're under the assumption that the billing company does everything. They QA their codes, they they do the education, they monitor the documentation that they're providing these services that maybe aren't in that contract. And that assumption sometimes is what's detrimental to the whole process. And I just wanted to add one more thing, Sean, before we move on. I noticed in the comments, we've got a couple of billing companies in there. And, and I just wanted to comment, especially if you're offshore. Um, we are not disparaging offshore companies. We actually have a very awesome offshore uh, company person that's within the NSCHBC, you know, um, Vinod Venkirian. And he actually makes frequent trips to India and Pakistan to monitor what's going on within his billing company. However, I'm noticing in the comments that there's comments being made, and I'm going to be clear about this, and hopefully this doesn't ruffle feathers. So, Sean, I apologize if I say it in advance. But you just to say that we are serving these providers, just to say that you know we make sure rejected claims are a top priority, you can say all that you want, but what I would want to see if I was dealing with an offshore company um, and somebody also asked, how do the internal legal departments of hospitals allow this? I want to see legal representation on both sides. I want to see where it is in your compliance program, how you handle things when there's a problem. I would want to see a paper trail of what has happened and where you've had maybe some holes in the system and how it's been fixed, what your corrective action plan was, and how you've moved on beyond that. Um, you can give any kind of lip service you want. But because, and, and I'm sorry, but this is going to be something that's there, and, and I apologize for saying this, but we have seen so much fraud, waste, and abuse from companies who are out of, of country that it is very tough to um, bring back that credibility and that trust until you see it firsthand. And so for me, until I see it firsthand and see all the processes in place, it's hard to want to go outside the country, especially because I deal so much with regulatory issues um, on Medicare, which says, and again, care management is a headache right now for me, but where companies are based out of country, have told the doctor they're not because they happen to have an office inside the country, but that's not where they're based. And they're providing services to try to get paid under the Medicare program or under a contracted program that has clearly stated you can't if it's out of country. And so this is where, and I know I sound probably frustrated, but it's just, you know, you can tell us everything, but until we see it in writing, in white paper, how you've handled the process, we don't trust it. So that, and I'm not saying that companies in the United States are, you know, any better too. There's always the, you know, I mean, Sean and Scott and Paul, I'm sure all of you guys and Stephanie have dealt with companies inside the U.S. that have actually, you know, made some egregious errors as well and have paid for it. But the, to Sean's point is that it's more difficult because the reach isn't there out of country. And so when you're dealing with the revenue cycle management that is offshore, when you're dealing with, um, you know, trying to, to get a hold of somebody who's offshore, perfect example, when there was flooding and when there was uh, a big, um, I think, I don't know if it was an earthquake or something, there was something that happened. It was a natural disaster in India. And there was a billing, all kinds of billing issues there. And they, a lot of the staff, like we did during COVID, moved home. Well, they had compromised systems. They didn't have anything in place for internet. There was no HIPAA protection. And so there was some things that were just awful. And there was no way to, to safeguard it. 
So, um, and I think one of our trusted colleagues, Roseman Bapat, put in the in the chat, she said a lot of our software companies have their RCM arm offshore. So piggyback on Sunel's question, how are they being held accountable? And it, it, you have to have two-way legal legal um, representation on both sides. And then, sorry, Sean, but that that's important. So let me well, let me say a couple of things real quick. Okay, so um, one of the first things that was brought up, and I want to put this comment up by Pam because it's it's a very accurate statement. Billing companies don't own the billing data. This is work for hire. And we have had a couple of billing companies and a couple of EHR companies tried to hold hostage the information contained within their systems for providers or hospitals that decided they wanted to transition away from them for whatever the reason is. That is a violation of the information blocking rule. There is an organization called the Office of the National Coordinator. And in the event that an organization blocks access to billing information, to medical record information, that is a significant fine that would be levied. And there are significant steps that the Office of the National Coordinator could and will take to ensure that you are not holding hostage information that belongs to another organization. Think about this. If you have information in your system that was work for hire for which you have been paid to provide that service and you fail to turn that information over, how are you any different than a cyber terrorist who hacks into a system, breaches it, takes it, and holds it hostage waiting for a ransom payment? Folks, I'm telling you, if you are a third-party vendor and you are responsible for maintaining information for a hospital, a health system, a physician's practice, be careful. I know it's easy to get angry and frustrated and think that we're just going to hold this information until they play in our court. That's not the way it works with the Office of the National Coordinator. I can promise you this. I've been involved in matters with unbelievable folks like Amanda Wesh, Robert Lyles. We have taken on these cases and it has not worked out well for the third party companies. Now, I do want to say something else because Sanal Patel asked a, a, a very good question that Rosman, to your point, Terry, piggybacked on. Um, the question was, how do the internal legal departments allow the myriad of U.S. hospitals to offshore their coding and billing? How are they protecting these entities? So, listen, we can have conversations about having paperwork, contracts, things in black and white that protect the organization. But at the end of the day, those documents are only as valuable as the paper they're written on if they're enforceable. And if an organization is outside of the United States, beyond the reach of the Justice Department, you're SOL. I don't know how else to say it. So with that said, again, to all of those uh, uh, folks who are listening in who may be offshore and you're you're frustrated with what we're saying, we're not trying to dissuade people from using your services, but there are inherent risks, not only here for the people using your services, but potentially for your organization as well. All right, I'll take the last word on that one, and then I want to transition over to, and I 
that went off the rails a little bit, didn't? I mean, we started with UHC, who were supposed to be just taking the task, and we wound up going off the rails. But with that said, Scott Craft, I want to go to you right now, my friend. And I want to talk about behavioral health systems because um, what we're starting to see, and I shouldn't say systems, but behavioral health coding, um, what we are starting to see is a ramp up in interest by insurance companies, by investigators, looking at the services that are being rendered by mental health care professionals, behavioral health uh, uh, professionals. Last week, um, I got, well, I got to be careful. I have two new cases that have come in uh, that are tied directly to behavioral health, as we were talking about down in Orlando. But I want to go ahead and pause here and give you the floor for a few minutes, and then Stephanie, come over to you as well and talk about the behavioral health and sort of what's going on there. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate that, Sean. I, I think one of the things I've seen a lot lately, and and I think you're right that there's been more attention being played to behavioral health services, but there's a couple of things that we see. Uh, the first one is an understanding that while the documentation requirements for a behavioral health service often seem uh, less stringent than certainly like a 95 or 97 guidelines ENM service, it is important that behavioral health services reflect the fact that a professional medical service is being provided to a patient in need. And so I had been auditing a behavioral health services client last year that first got me thinking on this topic where the patient, the provider had been seeing a lot of these patients for, for quite a period of time. Uh, and oftentimes the, the documentation of the encounters took on an almost conversational tone, right? Like it was almost like I was reading a a one or two paragraph update of the patient's previous week, uh, and that was kind of the end of it. And, and and the provider was getting away from the notion of what is the modality of therapy that I'm providing to you today or more or modalities? What am I doing? Like, what am I professionally doing to help you solve your medical problem? Uh, how is that reflected in your goals of care? How are those goals of care being updated, right? And that's before we get into some of the things with respect to clone documentation. And so, you know, when I think of like physical therapy, right? The thing we always say about physical therapy is it's not maintenance, really. It's like the patient should be working on or focused on improving in some way. If we were just going to all get together and say, this is where we are and there's nothing we can do about it, then there's really not a lot of necessity for the service. And so I think it's important to be focused on that because these services are becoming uh, more of an audit target. Now, one of the things that uh, I'm also seeing in some instances is lackadaisical time documentation. I was working on an audit today where, uh, you know, the, the in and out time didn't match the visit time. And some of these things I could tell through the EMR were being carried forward in different ways. And on the one hand, it's easy to say, well, if I'm saying it's 55 minutes in one section, and 60 minutes in another section, you know, what's the harm, right? Like I'm in the one hour coding zone in both instances. But again, it speaks to, uh, you know, poor documentation practices that are the low hanging fruit uh, of a lot of these behavioral health audits. So I think it's important to understand, you know, time, modality, uh, goals of care, progress towards goals of care, lack of progress towards goals of care revisions to goals of care. And, and as I, the last thing I want to say before I hand it off to Stephanie, or actually I'll just, I'll just let her take the floor on this because I know she and I have discussed this in the past. There's a lot of sensitivity towards the content of behavioral health notes and their 
release into the public space. So when I audit a behavioral health note, it's not unusual, even as I may have a HIPAA agreement with the, with the client, that all of the patient information is redacted as part of the behavioral health audit process, which is fine, but it is not acceptable to turn around and say, essentially, I under-documented in the patient's encounter note due to the sensitivity of what the patient's talking about. And I think Stephanie will talk about that part of it a little bit more. Yeah. So I have two extremes here to talk about. The first along the lines of what Scott was saying, I had an audit I did towards the end of last year and the therapist did not feel comfortable putting any level of detail whatsoever in the therapy notes for audits. So what ended up happening is I received a, a portion of notes for for the psychotherapy audit. I looked at it, I had the time, I had a statement saying there was psychotherapy and there was a signature. So we go back and we're like, okay, well, where's the documentation? And she's like, well, I'm not going to give that to you. I'm not comfortable giving it to you. And, um, you know, it became this whole conversation about content, the sensitive nature of behavioral health services. But it comes down to the fact that to a certain extent, from a billing perspective, we do have to have information in there, like Scott said, for sure showing time, they're time-based services. If you don't have time, you have nothing. Um, from there, we need to have the methods or the modalities that are used during those services. And then also, if you think about the fact that these are occurring at a certain level of frequency, we have to have continued support from a medical necessity perspective. So if you have nothing, then how do we even know that it continues to be necessary for that particular patient? Now, really quick, this is just something that I got a huge kick out of. This is just kind of joking around here, but I had on the other end of the spectrum an audit where I pulled psychotherapy notes and uh, the entire thing had completely been dictated. So the whole conversation, the, the provider must have been using dictation software. And I can tell you that particular note was highly uncomfortable reading because, you know, the patient had been through quite a bit in the past that they were working through in therapy. And that particular provider had every nitty gritty detail that I thought was too much, um, literally dictating. So my next question, which I'll throw this to the panel, was, you know, how, from a compliance perspective, how comfortable are we if a provider chooses to record their patient? Um, Sean and I have had questions about Zoom conversations being recorded. And then also this particular situation, which Scott, I think you saw something similar as well, where the provider had dictation software and every word spoken by the therapist and the patient were there in black and white. Yeah. And I think on that second question, you know, sorry, just to jump in right quick, there, there's obviously state and local laws with that. I, I would anticipate the patient has some awareness of that happening and, and has hopefully uh, consented to that. Um, but yeah, I've seen all of those things and, and I've seen literally like a 45 minute conversation dictated into the chart, misspellings, uh, and everything. And, and, you know, we, I, I've read all kinds of things in medical notes over the years, uh, you know, things that have ended up in places where they're not supposed to end up and, you know, all manner of things. And, you know, we're professionals, we have these HIPAA agreements. I just need to understand that compliance is taking place. And when we talk about, 
you know, 90837, the 60 minute code. Some, some payers have a heightened requirement uh, with respect to the medical necessity of that particular service. And so it is important that we do have those items uh, conveyed accurately. And the last thing I'll say, because I think Terry wanted to jump in, when you're doing a medical service and a psychotherapy note, you don't have to do two separate notes, but the number of times that that just ends up looking like mud uh, is is many, right? And so the time has to be clearly allocated to the psychotherapy service. The psychotherapy service has to be clearly a psychotherapy service. And when you start to blur that with the medical decision-making, uh, that adds another layer of complexity. Yeah, I was just going to say, Go ahead, just, first, first of all, I'm happy that Scott's back. Scott, you speak like a journalist, so I could listen to you, you for days. You <laughs> have, you have this way of, of speaking where I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about it that way. Um, so it's it's awesome. But one of the things I have a lot of telehealth on behavioral health that's being done and recorded. And I'm like, no, no, no. What are you doing? Because I was reading a note for audit and <laughs> patients, I guess their staff was walking in and out of the room during the conversation and however they were recording it. And from what she said, it was like a Surrey type setup. And um, they were asking questions about a patient in the next room that added onto this transcript. And I'm just like, that's, oh shoot, I'm reading it. And they never redacted it, never took it out. And it's part of that patient's um, file. So that patient's <laughs> conversation, like Stephanie said, word for word, back and forth, also had who walked in the room and asking about another patient in that information. So I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Sean, back to you. <laughs> well, no, I want to stick with you, Terry. Um, so are we good here on the behavioral health? I think y'all did a, 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 a bang up job. You knocked it out of the park. Terry, I want to stay with you. Okay. Um, I want to talk because you started to bring it up telehealth and it actually, I think it ties in nicely with what Sanal had just brought up about, um, telehealth services. So telehealth, good, bad, and different, whatever you want to think about it. Right. They are a permanent part of our health system at this point right now. Uh, they, they, they may go for another decade. Who knows? We'll see. But there's a lot of mass confusion because the extension of the public health emergency. And what does that mean for telehealth services? Because what happens if you start to render these services across state lines? But you're not, you're not certified. You're not board certified in that state to render services. How does that impact your ability to provide care, your ability to write for prescriptions, your ability to bill and to get paid for those services? So we had a, a problem at the beginning of the pandemic. So we are now in January 2023. The start of this pandemic was technically January 2020, but all of the flexibilities came into play March 1st of 2020. So now we are in what's third year now. It feels like the seventh year, but okay. So we're in the third year. They've renewed the public health emergency 12 times. So right now it's going through um, April 11th. Uh, we don't know if it's going to be renewed again. I, after they renewed it this last time, I thought, you know what, this could be the last thing we'll know on, in February because they're going to give a, they're supposed to give us a 60 day notice. So we'll know in February if it's going to be extended. That being said, what was happening in 2020 was there was a TV, I don't want to call it a TV show, but a there, you remember how we were getting all of those updates on um, vaccines are coming and 
you know, you, you have to be quarantined. And I mean, it was pretty bad. You know, people were not allowed to, to leave their space or they were getting arrested in some states. It was terrible. And so telehealth was absolutely necessary. There's no question. And on TV, our politicians said, guess what? You can come out of retirement. And if you're in Arizona, you can see that patient in New Jersey. If you're here, you can see that patient there. Well, before there was mandates of doing this, a lot of states jumped on board and said, okay, we'll be okay with that, but it's temporary. And they kept saying that. Payers kept saying it's temporary. Medicare kept saying it's temporary, but we're going to allow it at this point. Because remember, those are very high fees and states want those fees to be licensed and all that go that goes with it in, in certain states. Well, then we had the you know pandemic fatigue after a year and we got vaccines, we got things to treat it, to deal with it, and we saw the decline in cases. And so many states at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, and definitely by July of 2021, and I say many, meaning almost two-thirds of the country, came back out and said, okay, so we, you can still see patients in our state, but uh, you need to be licensed in our state. Okay, so then, and Florida was a big one. They were just like, Get out of here unless you're licensed. We don't want we don't want to see that cross reference. The other thing is that Medicare, two years into this, they said, oh, by the way, about those limitations on the 1135 based licensure waivers, and I'm quoting from what they said in April of 2022, they said an 1135 waiver, when granted by CMS, does not have the effect of waiving state or local licensure requirements or any requirements specified by the state or local government. Those requirements would continue to apply unless the state waived it. So they get up on TV and say, guess what you can do? And then two years later, they say, just kidding. The other thing is a lot of people were, a lot of providers were not checking their malpractice insurance. I know Paul and Scott probably saw that where they weren't checking to see if they had audio only coverage or if they even had telecoverage at all. I have a percentage of clients that said it's nowhere, nowhere in my malpractice coverage. And so it goes on to say for the Medicare published guidance, again, April 7th, 2022, says, therefore, in order for the physician or non-physician practitioner to avail him or herself of the 1135 waivers, and it goes on, it says the state would also have to waive its licensure requirements, either individually or categorically, for the type of practice for which they're trying to practice for. Now, are there exceptions? I know that in a couple of states, New Hampshire, they, that's one of them, like the obscure, you know, th things really smaller areas. They said, well, if you're only doing, if you're only doing telehealth, then we may make an exception for you because you're not, you're not, not coming to our state, but it's rare. Um, as of December of last year, we had 11 states that would still allow the cross over without having to be licensed there. But as of January, now it's only eight states. We've had, remember, we had the midterm. So different governors have changed different rules. But here's the thing everybody needs to know. A practitioner must be licensed to practice in the state which the patient is located in the time of visit. That is the takeaway, okay? You may encounter terms that say things like remote state, home state, um, distant site, originating site, and other things. But right now, on all the regulations, all the rules, everything I've read, even during the public health emergency, the, the practitioner must be licensed to practice in the state where the patient is located in 80 to 85% of the situation. So for me to say, well, I'm going to pick out this one state and see if they'll allow me to do it and cross state lines. 
I wouldn't do it. it it's it's not worth the, the legal trouble. And remember, and I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to Sean's legal mind on this once I make the comment because this is a really, really big deal. If you practice medicine where the patient is located and but you are not licensed where the patient is located and you don't fit within any of those exceptions, then technically you're practicing medicine without a license in that state. And that carries criminal liability. So, Sean, at that point, I'm going to let you take, take that away because I get a lot of providers saying, well, I don't, I'm just a health coach or I'm not prescribing medicine or I'm not doing this. So that doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. Healthcare has a very broad definition. So it does. It. it does. And so that, that, that was fantastic. And I know, Christine, you had some thoughts on that and I'll come to you here. Why don't you go ahead and take those thoughts? Because when I go up into the center square in a minute, we're about to go to church. Right on. So I just wanted to piggyback off of what Terry was talking about. So in, in my state, Florida, we ended our emergency in 2021, June 26, 2021. And, and I know that for the physicians that I work with, I made sure to be very specific with them that that's when the crossing state lines ends. Our state said it, state trumps federal, that's what we're doing. But also I had a lot of providers ask me about the interstate compact and Florida doesn't participate in the interstate compact. You've really got to do your due diligence in, in any new service that you're going to, or continued service that you're going to do in your practice. So find out what those laws are crossing state lines, find out what those laws are for audio only. Um, right. California ended theirs in August of 2022. So we go back to what it was before, unless there is some sort of legislative guideline that has changed. And, and that would be usually we find in our final rules that they've made those changes. So, you know, you have to be involved. You have to know what's going on. It has to be specific for your state. It can't be what somebody else is doing in some other state. Um, I'll leave it at that. But there's there's so much to these services that need to be researched plans put in place, run it through your compliance program, um, have have that policy procedure of how we're doing it and revisit it as as things change. Your state emergencies change. Your The federal eventually will get out of this public health emergency. Fingers crossed. Right. And, and that's another time that everybody's going to have to have that emergency compliance meeting to see what changed and how do we be compliant in that? Sorry. No, fantastic. All right. So I want to take on something that has just been absolutely bothering me tremendously. Hey, um, Sean, before you do that, local I coverage think, determinations. I think Scott had a real quick What's question. That? On that. Can, can Scott yeah. finish up yeah. a comment on that just real quick? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Terry. The, th the thing I wanted to point out, um, and, and there, there's really two public health emergencies. There's the public health emergency that affects Medicare policies that the federal government issued that said, you know, you can do telehealth outside of an originating site and you can use like FaceTime and your state had its own public health emergency that governed the scope of practice of medical providers within that state. And that's the part that we started out with where we were basically saying, OK, it's in the middle of this public health emergency. It's a free for all. Right. Like anybody can see anybody at any time in any place. Most of those state public health emergencies have ended. 
And those are the ones that govern telehealth. Now, you know, one of the things we did get a lot of during telehealth were individual providers had reached out to us and said, hey, you know what? I'm an employed internal medicine doctor. I've decided I want to do like a nationwide telehealth practice out of my house in Kentucky. And this is what I want to do. And so I learned a lot of crazy rules about telehealth that exist within various state scopes of practice. For example, in the state of, I believe, Missouri, if you are a nurse practitioner performing a telehealth visit, you have to have a contractual agreement with a physician who is physically located within a certain distance of you, not available remotely, like physically located within, it was something like a 20 mile radius of your physical location. And so the only mechanism in which I would recommend providers lean into telehealth is if you're operating on a state border and you're basically saying, you know, I'm on the border of Florida and Alabama and I've got people here and I've got people there and I'm based in Florida, but my patients who want telehealth live in Alabama, I'm going to figure out what I need to do to be licensed in Alabama to satisfy their requirements because every state runs this through different agencies. Every state's licensure process is different. Uh, And even still where we started off three years after the fact, I see these things in telehealth all the time. I see things that say, well, we tried to connect by a video and we failed. So we're just doing it as audio, but it's billed as a telehealth video visit without regard to the differentiating audio rules. So I I, I just wanted to throw some of that stuff in there um, because it is an order of magnitude more complicated than you think. And you probably think it's complicated points. Thank you, Scott, for jumping in on that. So, all right, let's, let's get a few minutes. Local coverage determinations. A couple of things about LCD. They are not law. They are not statutes. They are not acts. They are not regulations. They do not go through a formal rulemaking process, hence the term local coverage determination. Local coverage determination means that it is specific to your Medicare administrative contractor. An LCD is a guideline. It's guidance. There are carrier advisory committee guidelines that are in there. Notice none of the words that I'm using are regulations, laws, acts, statutes. Now, just because something is not a regulation, a law, a statute or an act doesn't mean that you don't have to follow it. You do, especially when it comes to strict liability situations. If you're in pain management and your LCD says you cannot render more, you cannot render and bill for more than four spinal procedures in a rolling 12 months and you bill for five, you have violated the LCD from a strict liability standpoint. Now, here's the other thing. And, and and this one is kind of what got me hot today. In the absence of an LCD, that doesn't mean that we get to revert to the wild, wild west. That doesn't mean that you get to just go on and bill for whatever it is that you feel like you should bill for and then you're entitled to get paid for because it doesn't work that way. Within the Medicare Program Integrity Manual, You have a specific section. It's chapter three and it's 3.6.2.2. And it specifically talks about the reasonable and necessary criteria. 
And what it talks about is in the event that there is no local coverage determination, a MAC, a UPIC, a CERT, a RAC, <clears throat> they have the ability to consider an item or service to be reasonable and necessary if the item or service meets some criteria. One, it has to be safe and effective. Two, and this is the most important one, folks, it is not experimental or investigational. Okay? If you're doing some kind of cuckamamie uh, uh, service treatment on your patients because you believe that it works and there may be empirical evidence to support the fact that what you're doing is, is you know, medically accepted, right? We have something in healthcare that's referred to as generally accepted standards of medical practice. But if you have something that is experimental and or investigational and you look at it and you go, well, there's no LCD, Sean. I mean, God, if they didn't want us to bill for it, wouldn't they tell us that we couldn't? Folks, we're talking about the government here. They're not exactly at the same pace that the rest of us are at. They tend to fall just a little bit behind what everybody else is doing. Folks, this is one of the big things that we run into all the time. Yeah, there's another one, too. Thank you for bringing that up, Paul. Um, folks, there is a big difference between FDA cleared and FDA approved, okay? Now, we can have a whole course on that, but we're not going to do it right now because of time. But here's where I want to leave you. If you believe that a service you are rendering is medically necessary, it's medically reasonable, and it's medically appropriate, and there is scientific peer-reviewed information that you can use to support your position to submit it to a UPIC if you're investigated, to submit it to the MAC if they are denying your claims, for them to then review it, okay? That's a different story. But just to say to me, and I, I, this just happened today, I, and, and it's not the first time it's happened. If you send me a direct message or you send me an email and you say, why can't I bill it if there's not an LCD saying I can't? Because the absence of an LCD does not mean you have the right to bill for a service. It's that simple. I cannot tell you in the last four years, I've done 40 criminal and civil trials. LCDs are always brought up or the lack of an LCD. And what does that mean? Folks, remember, if you go back into chapter three of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual and you look at 30.6.1, where it talks about medical necessity, medical necessity is the overarching criteria in addition to the individual elements of a CPT code. Remember, irrespective of how much documentation your system is able to spit out, I don't care if it gives me 10 pages of documentation. It's probably 10 pages of garbage because you have 37 uh, 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 problem list issues that have not been resolved since 1998. All right, I am going to stop there. Let me give the floor to one of my esteemed panelists for any commentary, any, in, uh, any takes. 
I have something real quick. Um, so when you're mentioning a lack of LCD, I just want to give some guidance there. If you can't find an LCD policy for a service that you're looking to bill specifically, sometimes you have to kind of dig around, read between the lines. Um, specifically, and I know Terry's uh, spoken some today about devices and things like that. We've had different clients that use different machines for treatment that are not considered to be reimbursable. And the frustrating part, if you look to CMS, a lot of times they won't name a machine by its actual manufactured name. So what you have to look at is what it does, what its target treatment um, indication, the primary diagnoses are, and go from there. And sometimes what I have found is that I don't find the name of the machine. I don't find specifically what my client is doing with the machine, but I do find a policy that shows when a similar service is reimbursable. And that's a way that I kind of, you know, in a reverse way, find out that that's not something that they're going to be able to do and be reimbursed for. So um, you really have to dig. You have to be familiar with the different policies in place. Look between the lines because sometimes it's not going to just hit us in the face. Most of the time it doesn't. Um, commercial payers can be a little easier if they do name the machine or things specifically, but um, it can be a little hard to dig around and try and figure that out. Yeah. So let me let me address this one real quick here, and then uh, Christine, Terry, Paul, Scott, I'll come to you for your final thoughts on this. So the question is from Sanal: Can you talk about LCDs that exist for one geographic area but is silent in another? This is so important, and I'm so glad you asked this question. Okay, how can those be utilized in favor of the provider or not? Okay, so there is a 2014 Office of Inspector General study that was published that discusses the inconsistencies in LCDs from Mac to Mac creates significant problems for the Medicare administrative contractors in administrative hearings and or federal district court. The inconsistencies, i.e. the lack of a policy in one region versus another, creates a significant issue for practices. So. Let's say Paul and I are in a practice together in Illinois, but one mile down the road, you cross over into, into Indiana, and we have another practice there. Well, guess what? We have two separate Medicare administrative contractors for those two different states. One of them may have an LCD for the procedures that we're doing in Illinois, but the other one in Indiana does not. So what does that mean? So one of the things that I do is if there's a dispute with the Medicare administrative contractor or if it's a UPIC investigation or audit that's going on, what I do is I begin by submitting the 2014 OIG study to say, hey, OIG already knows that y'all don't have your stuff together and that this is creating and wreaking havoc on the healthcare industry. The second thing that I do is I write my position to indicate that there is clear guidance for this service. Maybe it comes from Wisconsin Physician Services, or it comes from National Government Services, or it comes from First Coast Service Options, to where they have set a precedent in their region. And by setting that precedent, it demonstrates that there is a willingness to cover these services 
with the following limitations and or guidance. If it is good enough for one of these other Macs to cover, then it needs to be accepted by your Mac. And if it's not, then we have no problems reaching out to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in Baltimore, Maryland, and submitting to them as the arbiter whether or not your Mac should follow the guidance of all of the other Macs out there. I mean, we just had this in a situation, Paul, where we had six out of the seven Macs paying for something through LCDs, and one Mac had absolutely zero uh, 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 LCD on it. But not only that, there were inconsistencies from Mac to Mac on how many of these services you could actually render and bill for. It's extremely frustrating. So let me pause here. We've got a few seconds, Paul. I want to give you the last word on this one. Okay. Well, uh, here's another interesting uh, curveball that I came across today. Uh, I came across an add-on code that a physician was asking about reimbursement because they were considering purchasing a piece of equipment, which are you know, uh, which is always a scary uh, term for a compliance professional. Uh, and here's another tip. Um, if it's an, you know, in this particular case, this code was an add-on code, you know, where the add-on code was really, it fell under this kind of amorphous LCD having to do with independent diagnostic testing facilities. But based on the nature of the add-on code, you probably needed to look at another LCD that covered the services that are billed on the line above that add-on code and that are adjudicated in a completely different LCD. Uh, so that's just, that's my revelation for the day. Uh, and that's something that I can add to that conversation, Sean. All right. So we are at the one hour mark. I want to thank Christine Hall, Stephanie Allard, Terry Fletcher, Paul Spencer, Scott Kraft, and especially each and every single one of you who has tuned in, logged on, and hung out with us for this last hour. We are so grateful. Terry and I will be back tomorrow with our hashtag Terry Tuesday. I think we're going to be talking about CCM services. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that one. I'll be back on Wednesday with J squared with Jordan Johnson. And then later this week, I'll be sitting down with assistant attorney general, Kenneth Polite, who is over the criminal division at the justice department. I am so excited. I think that's going to be on Thursday or Friday this week, but Stay tuned, uh, keep up with me on the blog, and I'll make sure you all know when Kenneth and I are doing our podcast. It will be live streamed right here on LinkedIn and on the other streaming platforms. So it will be a fantastic conversation, and you'll get to hear it directly from the source on what direction the Justice Department is going when it comes to corporate compliance programs. All right, so until tomorrow when Terry and I are back, Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. 
and we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.